Hi everybody and welcome to the Junction Church Podcast. We pray that this message inspires and encourages you. If you would like to find out any more information about us, then please visit our website at www.thejunctionchurch.com. Thank you for listening. Uh, I love a dare. I remember when I was about, about 11 years old, uh, I was round at my neighbor's house with uh, my friends and my brothers, I can't quite remember. And we were, uh, we were doing dressing up and we were going through my neighbor's clothes and uh, his, my neighbor had a, had a sister and we were going through the clothes and we found a pink tutu. <laughs> and so I thought it'd be fun, I'm going to put this pink tutu on. So I put this pink tutu on, it was about, it was like for a six-year-old and I would have been like 11. And so it was like this really like super tight pink, you know, sort of frilly tutu and I'm sort of prancing around the back garden with this tutu on and I was dared at that point we had a we had a fun run I think we were in like primary seven it was our last year at school and they always would do this fun run for the for the primary sevens and we would go running around the school in in whatever uh, outfits fancy dress that we wanted and somebody dared me they said I dare you to wear that to the fun run and obviously without even thinking about it I was like, of course I'd do it I'm not scared to do that and uh so it came to the time that we were doing the fun run, and it was about this point I began to have second thoughts, began to, to realize maybe this was not the, the wisest solution. It was, it was that point in a, a young man's life where he goes from sort of trying to pull girls' hair to, to wanting to stroke it and smell it, and uh, it's all very confusing, and you're not really sure what's happening. But, uh, but the idea of coming dressed as, uh, as, as in a pink tutu, it seemed like that might have detrimental sort of consequences for my future dating life. Uh, but I'd been dared, and I couldn't go back on it. So I turned up to... Uh, to school, I had it in my backpack, and after lunch, we were told, right, we're going to do the fun run. So I very sort of shy and put it on and waited till we got to the, to, the, to the front line. And obviously, I was being sort of given a bit of a hard time. But, you know, you just have to keep a brave face. If you, if you up the ante, then, then, you know, nobody can really, you know, say, oh, I, I don't care. I bet you wouldn't do it. Uh, but I, the thing about fun runs is fun runs aren't really that competitive, right? I mean, fun runs, you just jog around, you have a good time. I went around like sort of like stink. I just sped around. I think I came second. I am not athletically gifted, but I came like second. I think I came back behind the Blues Brothers or something like that. And I sped around that thing. I have never ran so fast in my life. I did, could not wait for that thing to be finished. Because, and, and it just, it brought the best out of my athletic prowess, I guess. It brought the best out of me. I've never, my, my reality and my potential have never aligned more perfectly than at that moment. I sped around there and there was some Something about being dared that I guess maybe, and also the fact that probably everyone was dawdling around and enjoying a sunny afternoon. But uh, a break, what, what that was, what it kind of was, was a breakout performance. It was a, in terms of running, it was a breakout performance, the best seeding I would have ever achieved in my entire life. Uh, I, it, was, it was a moment where, where really I, I managed to sort of seize all of my potential. I had all of the motivation in the world to make myself run as fast as I could possibly run. And I want to talk today about breakout performances. We're going to talk first. We're going to go through a little bit of the, the life of uh, Elijah. And we're going to talk first. We're going to go to uh, 1 Kings 18, uh, verse 22. And just to give a little bit of a background, uh, Elijah had uh, prophesied over Israel that, that they would have... Uh, they would have a drought. There wouldn't be any rain. Uh, the king and his queen were, you know, they, they had sort of were serving false gods. They were no longer serving God. And, and God was going to sort of uh, put, put a drought 
upon the nation just to, just to show them that all of their provision really came from him. And, and Elijah had made this prophecy and then had been exiled. And then, but three years later, he came back and he spoke to King Ahab and uh, he set out a challenge. He set out a dare. And then, so it goes, Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves. Let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you can call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is the Lord. That's a pretty cool dare, isn't it? That's a pretty sort of going up there. He, he dared those prophets to an exhibition of their God's power. So you think this is your God? You've got 450 prophets? Let's see. Let's see. And so he called them and, and, and set out that challenge. Let's do the same thing. Let's have an altar. Let's have a sacrifice. Let's see whose God can consume it by fire. And so the prophets of Baal, they went first and they, they started to call on their name, uh, the name of their God. They called on it for all day long from, from the morning till evening. That they, they danced around the altar all day long, which I think of myself, how on earth can you dance all day long, particularly in like the day and the sun? I mean, fair enough, you might be able to do it at night, but during the day, how could you possibly? There was 450 of them. It was like King Ahab sort of subbing them in. It's like, come on, you go in. You do the pogo. You do the pogo. You do the clap. You know, get them going in there. Get them going. You do the moves. You do the moves. Can't go in all the time. And by noontime, Elijah just started to taunt them. And I don't really think that God particularly told him to taunt them. I just think after watching these guys run around for six hours and nothing happening, he just started to take the mick. He just started to rip them apart and say, what are you guys doing? Is your God on holiday or something? Is he asleep or something? Come on, give me a break. And so the, the prophets of Baal started, well, we've got to up the ante a little bit here. So they started dancing more frantically. They started prophesying even more crazily. They started to take so and spears and they would, they would cut themselves so they would bleed which was part of their sort of religion it must have been like what a sight that would have been these manic 450 prophets of Baal dancing around the place bleeding and everything and nothing happening nothing happening at all and Elijah just sitting at the side reclining on a stone and laughing his head off at them laughing at just what morons they must have looked like and afterwards he said alright now it's my turn but I want to up the ante even more so he got 12 jars of water and he poured them. He had them poured all over his altar. First of all, he dug a trench around it and, and, and he poured these 12 jars of water. So, so much so that everything on that altar was completely and utterly soaking and that so much so that the trench around it was filled. So he had, just, he had just put himself at a greater disadvantage. But it's quite funny if you think about it. If God's going to set it on fire, it doesn't really, it's, that's a pretty big miracle in itself, whether you soak it or not. But it must have, he must have looked like, oh my goodness, we've just spent 12 hours trying to do this during the day when there was at least a chance that the sun might have set it on fire. This guy's soaking it and it's at night. And he sat down, I'll, I'll, I'll read on from uh, 1 Kings 18 verse 36 to 39. Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel. And that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you, 
Lord our God, and that you are turning their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord! He is God! The Lord! He is God! What a what an awesome story that is. Like it's really remarkable when you think about what actually must have happened. It was it was a breakout performance for Elijah. It was uh, his moment on Mount Carmel, and it was such a daring confrontation with with this oppressor. He'd been he'd been exiled. He'd been banished. He was scared for his life, and yet he had come and he'd faced them down. Faced four hundred and fifty. He'd watched them all day long, and yet had had such confidence. In that moment, being so moved by God that he, had, that he had set out a challenge which it seemed he had no chance of winning. And yet, God came through and the people's hearts were instantly sort of changed around. He was, was that sort of dream scenario. I don't know about you, but it's that dream scenario as being the sort of the lone hero that unveils their secret weapon. Say hello to my little friend. You know something that they don't know. It's like that guy who's seen the end of the film. He knows how it's going to end, and he has that confidence. I think in our lives, we desire, we desire a breakout performance. Our, and now what I mean by that is we have this hope that, that God would use us to significantly alter our circumstances. And those circumstances might be our own. It might be other people's circumstances, but that we want to see God use us in a significant way, that we would break out of the normal and walk in the supernatural. So I want to I talk a bit about that because in order to have a breakout, you need to have a breakthrough. You need to smash through that ceiling that sits above you. And so we're going to talk about what is that ceiling that restrains us, restrains us, that limits us, and how do we transcend that limitation? I, uh, as I've got a bit older, I, I know that I'm not old, so I'm, I'm not going to sort of insult anyone by suggesting that I am, but... Uh, uh, <laughs> but I have recognized that, I'm, that, that when I had youth, and youth is a, doesn't have an age attached. Youth is a mindset. That's how I'll put it, right? But, but when you have a youthful mindset, you have this sort of irrepressible quality. Uh, I remember, this will seem very foolish, uh, but I remember sort of as a young person, a uh, child, young man, teenager, I remember just having been convinced, you know what, it doesn't matter what happens to me. I'm pretty sure I will never die. I was pretty sure I'm never going to die. And, and, and it was this irrational confidence. I was like, I'm not ever going to die. I just, I can't see that it would ever happen to me. I just don't think that it would, it just seemed like something that might happen to other people, but I would be able to just will myself not to, that I would just continue. As I said, it seems a bit foolish now. When I was in my late 20s, I remember playing football. And uh, I was playing football. I was going in, the ball was right there, there was another chap running towards it, I was running towards it, I got there just ahead of him, kicked the ball, my foot was then sort of planted on the ground, I had studs on, so it wasn't going anywhere, and the other guy came in just a fraction too late, and his foot came and it hit me right square on the shin, and my foot was completely planted, it was anchored, it wasn't going anywhere, and his foot just came full force, and I remember thinking to myself, he didn't break anything, I wasn't particularly severely injured, but I remember just having this feeling like it would not have taken a huge amount more for him to have snapped my leg. Like it was really like it, was like it, like it, it really just bent a little bit. And, but I, at that moment, I was like, well, I'm not really sure. I've got quite a lot of responsibilities in life. Uh, I, and I sort of pulled back a bit from playing football. I was like, you know what, I, I can't really afford to get 
injured. I can't really afford it. And I remember at that sort of point just sort of having a little bit of a, a sense of my own sort of uh, mortality, my own sort of vulnerability that, that although I may have sort of had this sort of mindset, this conviction that uh, I was sort of indestructible, that really I wasn't as indestructible as maybe I had thought. And, and I just remember, uh, thinking back on it, it's just... I had just allowed my world to shrink just a little bit. I just allowed my world to just... Now, maybe that you could call that a maturing, uh, that it was maybe became a little bit more realistic. However, it's not unfair to say that I did... It, the world just shrunk that little bit. That world, the, the, the possibilities just became a little bit smaller. My life has this habit of contracting our perspective. You know, the, 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 the experiences we have, they, they have a habit when they, when they knock us, that they take our perspective and they just they shrink it a little bit, they contract it a little bit. It becomes a little bit more limited. And what that does is it biases our outlook going forward. I was uh, listening recently to a, a program, uh, and they were talking about uh, intelligence. Intelligence, in, uh, particularly, it was actually in reference more to the United States. And it was saying that, the amount of money and the amount of effort that goes into uh, collating information, uh, intelligence, uh, counterintelligence, foreign intelligence, that it was something like, there was something like 12,000 departments or agencies just devoted to this. Not 12,000 people, but 12,000 actual departments, uh, private and government, that were their entire sort of focus was on collating information. And there was huge, it was like tens of billions of dollars every single year used to finance that. The amount of floor space required for it was, was enormous. It was, it was really quite amazing. And, and, and what they were, but the point of the program was this, it was that the quantity of information that was collated, the quantity of information that could be pulled together could paint the most detailed picture of a situation, of a scenario. It would, just, it, would be, it would fill in all the gaps. You would know everything that factually was happening in a, in a circumstance or a situation. But when you look at a picture, what does a picture tell you? What does a picture tell me? What does a picture tell Brian? What does a picture tell Neil? What does a picture tell Robin? If you look at a picture, particularly a very detailed one, a very beautiful one, one painted by a master, will probably tell you different things. It's up to your own interpretation, is it not? That's the beauty of a picture. It, it hits you in different ways. And what they were saying was that it doesn't actually matter. I mean, it's not the defining feature of how much information that you have. But what actually affects it is how it is interpreted. How the people who evaluate that information, how their outlook on life has such a huge influence. They gave an example of the Vietnam War, and they were saying that they, there was, they, they didn't have anywhere near as much intelligence back then. They really only had one uh, agency called, uh, called RAND, I believe it was. And they had these two sort of top-level analysis, and they saw the same information and drew completely opposite conclusions. And those conclusions had a massive influence on how the United States addressed and approached the Vietnam War. And, and yet it was the same information. And what they looked at, they went into the backgrounds of these guys, and these guys had had very uh, sort of tumultuous backgrounds, backgrounds where they'd had to escape from oppression, escape from genocide. And, and, and those perspectives, their experiences in life, had made a huge impact on their interpretation of the information. You know, we are exactly the same. Facts are impartial, but 
but the evaluation becomes tainted through our own sort of disposition, through our own experiences. I was thinking, a bungee jump. A bungee jump is a bungee jump. It's, it's neither a bad thing nor a good thing. It's, it's just you stand, you climb to the top of a bridge, you strap a bungee cord to you, and you jump off. That in itself is not a good thing or a bad thing. However, if you grew up chewing bubble gum, and you like to do that thing that I like to do, which is you pull it out of your mouth and you wait to that point where it reaches just the tension, you let go and the recoil smacks you in the face. And, and it's wonderful. I don't know about you. I mean, it's maybe a little bit wrong, but, oh man, I love doing that. Ping! If you're that kind of person, I'm pretty sure you love bungee jumping. I'm pretty sure that you would come to bungee jumping, yeah, you know what, I'm all in on bungee jumping. I like chewing and, and stretching bubble gum. I'm going to do this. If, however, you're like my little daughter, Alice, whose very inconsiderate parents sometimes, when they need to do other things, put her in the, the bouncer. You know the bouncer thing that you tie to the door? And the other kids, the three older kids, use it as a catapult to <laughs> project her up and down. It's like an inverted bungee jump. It's like you ping, bring. I'm afraid for her because I feel as if she might be terrified at the prospect of bungee jumping. Now, maybe the fear will have just it will have been numbed over time, but I'm pretty sure it won't. It will have deep-rooted itself as some psychological issue. Uh, <laughs> we'll pray for her. <laughs> but, you know, a bungee jump is, is nothing in itself, neither good nor bad. But where you came from, how you approach it, the journey that takes you to that jump is going to determine very greatly how you would perceive that experience, whether it be an experience you would look forward to or whether it be one that you would dread. Our perception, our ceiling is anchored in our experience. And because in our experience, we concede dominion. We concede dominion over our lives. We see areas of our lives and we shut areas of our lives off. We, we cede all control. We cede uh, our dominion over our lives through the experiences that we have, whether we choose to run to those experiences or whether we flee from them. I'm going to return now to Elijah, where he retreats to a familiar place. It says in 1 Kings 19, verse 1, Now Ahab told Jezebel, Jezebel was his queen, Ahab was the king. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. When he came to Bathsheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. What a remarkable turnaround. This is like a, like a fraction of time later. This is like the next day, the next morning. He had just had his breakout performance. He had just seen everything that the last three years had been building up for. And now he is running for his life terrified, praying that he might die. What a, what a huge turnaround. He was, and what is interesting is that he, he references the inadequacy of his, of his uh, ancestors. What he was saying was his ancestors did the same in that his ancestors also fleed 
from those sorts of adversities. They fled, they ran for their lives, they did not stand, and he was exactly the same. He was doing no different than them. He was now returning to the familiar. He was running an exile. He, he never wanted to go back. He didn't even want to continue living. And he used this as a sort of a permission to justify his, his capitulation. He was like, well, everyone, everyone up till now has done this. I'm going to do the same. And, he, and by doing that, he indulged in a smaller world. He allowed his world to be a little bit smaller. He was sleeping under a bush. He was hoping to die. He didn't want any more of this. Why, God, have you done? Why, why God, do I have to endure this any longer? It might seem counterintuitive, but there's actually something very comforting about a small and confined space, about something where there's a security in kind of knowing your limits, knowing this is where, this is my, this is my lane. I'm going to stay in my lane. I'm not going to go outside of this. I'm, I'm going to stick with what I know. It's a confined space. It's a limited space, but it's my space. People know what that feels like. People know in an area of your life where maybe it's like, I'm not going there anymore. I'm just going to stay here. I'm going to stay over here. It's a little bit safe. It's a little bit secure. Sure, it's limited, but at least it's predictable. At least it feels safe. We, by shrinking our world, we bring everything sort of close enough that we are no longer need to rely upon anyone else. We, 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 we can rely only on ourselves. And, and, and there is a comfort in that because it requires no faith. It requires just, just sort of that, that natural action. You can, just, you can live that way and it feels safe and it feels predictable. But every time, every time that you short-circuit an opportunity for faith. You cause the borders of hope and expectation to retract and you permit your world to shrink. You permit it. You, you allow those borders to come closer. You, you seek not to go into new territories, but you retreat. You retreat into yourself that you no longer wish to see all that God can do. It's enough just to know what you can do. You know what I mean? Begin to reflect. You, the entire approach to life changes because you begin to reflect more on what is possible in the natural and cease to sort of consider what is possible through God, what, 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 what God's intervention could cause. You, you stop looking in that direction. It's like you, you change it just to this. What can I do possibly? How am I going to navigate this situation rather than how is going to, going to intervene in this situation? And this is, this is the ceiling. This is the ceiling, this is the thing that shields us from the rays of God's providence and his favor. That's the ceiling, the ceiling that we place over ourselves. We, we adopt a posture of conservatism, where we just, we look to conserve what we have, to keep what we have and not let it change, not let it get any worse. And it's at the expense of our ascendancy. See, God has an ascendancy for us. And it's an ascendancy that he has primed for us, that he's prepared for us, and that he has set for us to seize hold of. That is his, his plan. He's created a platform where our voice can be heard and our voice can matter. A voice 
that will change the landscape of our culture. That is what God has planned for us. That is, that is the purpose that God has put within every single one of us, the destiny within every one of us. It outworks itself in so many different ways, but God wants us to have an influence upon our culture, an influence upon our society. And when we have a voice and recognize that it matters, then we are in the ascendancy. But when we adopt a posture of conservatism, then, then we no longer look for that platform. We shy away from that platform. We step back from that platform. And then God cannot, cannot, his voice cannot be heard in those circumstances. And it's very easy to say somebody else will do it. Somebody else will speak out. But there might not be anyone else in your circumstances. There might not be anyone else in your workplace. There might not be anyone else in your family. Your voice is the voice that matters. That is why God places that platform there. There was a time when I was at university. I shared a flat with this, uh, this medic called Raul. He owned to the flat. Yeah, it was Raul. It had a U in it somewhere. Uh, and he, he owned the flat. And so he had like the master set of keys. And this flat was in, in Glasgow. It was the top floor flat. It was to be like five or six stories up on a very busy road, very narrow road, actually. It was quite interesting. You could, you could see right into all the neighbors over there. And of course, they could see into you. Uh, and we were in this flat, and he had the master set of keys. And he went out one day, and for some reason, for some completely unknown reason, he locked one of the, the he used his key to lock one of the locks, which I didn't have a key for. And it was really the only time as an adult I can remember that I was literally locked in. I, I couldn't get out. I couldn't climb out the window unless I wanted to die. Uh, I couldn't get out. And, you know, it was a flat. Unless I wanted to smash the door down, and I didn't really want to lose my deposit. And I had university, and for some bizarre reason, I felt this overriding need to get to university. I, I mean, I don't think I'd ever had it before, and I doubt I ever had it since. But for some reason, I was, I was restrained, and I was like, well, I'm going to university. I am going to learn. Uh, and, and I was like, well, how am I going to get out of this? Um, and so I went, uh, there was... I'm, uh, I've never been in a flat since that has this, but there was actually a window. There was a cupboard next to the door, and as I went into it, there was a window right at the top that had bars on it. So I climbed up there, and I could push the window open, but there were these bars. So it was literally like I was in prison. And I started sort of going, hello, hello. I'm very sort of timid. Hello, is anybody there? Could somebody let me out? Because uh, I, I, if, I if I was on the other side, I would have been able to unlock the door. I don't know. It was a very weird flat. Uh, so I'm like, hello, hello, hello. But nobody was coming because I was kind of, I was very timid. It wasn't a voice that was going to carry. There was nobody in the hallway. And I realized that I wasn't going to get it done like that. I wasn't going to break out with a timid voice. I wasn't going to break out by just murmuring. So, so I started to sort of lift the volume of my voice. And I didn't go immediately. I didn't start shouting. I wasn't confident in that way. I wasn't going to just sort of shout into the abyss and see what happened. So I started going, hello, hello, hello. And, and, and I realized I just had to keep on increasing. So the more I would speak, the more I would shout, the louder I would shout, the louder I would shout. I was yelling at the top of my voice, can you let me out? And I was just about that far from going, fire, fire. <laughs> <laughs> and as I was like Screaming. I mean, I couldn't have shouted. I was now at the absolute limit of my voice. I'm screaming, screaming, screaming. Let me out, let me out, let me out. My neighbors, who are like there, I mean, they must have heard it. In fact, they did hear it. They told me that they had been listening at the door, but uh, they were scared I was like a, a they thought I was a junkie, basically. <laughs> Which uh, I was like, okay. I didn't know that they did that. 
shouting in hallways, but I guess they do. Uh, and they came out, and I handed them my keys and let me out. And they said, you know, that it was only because I shouted so loudly they could hear what I was saying. If up to that point, they just thought it was somebody causing a fuss. They were there the whole time. They could hear it. They heard me almost straight away, but they weren't prepared to do anything until I really lift the voice. And, and my point of this is, I had to break out of myself before I could break out of my circumstances. I had to break out of myself. I had to lift that thing off. I had to push myself out in order to get out of where I was. I'm going to continue. This is the last bit from Elijah that I'm going to read in 1 Kings 19 verse 11. And the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. And the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and he stood at the mouth of the cave. Then the voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Like in that moment, his ears suddenly opened. And God could finally speak to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing in the middle of nowhere? What are you doing living in a cave? What are you doing praying to me to die? Can you hear me now? God wasn't in the earthquake. He wasn't in any of the commotion. That wasn't, that wasn't God. He said I was coming by, but, it, but he wasn't in the commotion. He wasn't in the turmoil. He's in the still, small voice of God. And when Elijah heard it, he understood that God was with him. He understood that God was always there. Elijah heard God's voice and immediately stopped focusing on his fear of what people were going to do to him and his fear of being alone. He knew that God was there. God entered that situation. When we focus on the turmoil of our lives, we take our eyes off God. We take our eyes off of him. We, we, we remove the focus from him. But when we distinguish his soothing words through the din, when we hear those words, those still small words through the din, that's when we find that pathway to victory, that pathway to his reward. Elijah was filled with human frailties all through. It talks about the, the ups and downs of his life. But, but God, he was used mightily by God. This, this story, the story at the beginning of where, where, where he defeated those prophets, that's almost the first account of his life. There are many accounts afterwards. He's, he's inserted into so many historical events. That point where he heard God's voice, where he understood how to distinguish his voice from the turmoil, that was his breakout moment. That was his moment at which his life changed. It's easy to be a front runner. It's easy to run when you're running downhill. But being able to be led by God's voice, even when it gets steep, even when it gets rocky, even when the road becomes uncertain, that is when the truth has sunk in and everything comes into alignment. Everything makes sense. In discerning God's voice, his life found a tenacity and a determination 
that it had lacked up to that point. And it's the same with us. We find a resoluteness, a determination when we, when we allow God's voice to be the leading and guiding voice in our lives. It says in Psalms 118 verse 5 to 6, When hard-pressed, I cried to the Lord. He bought me into a spacious place. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? You might be feeling hard-pressed. You might be feeling cornered on all sides. The walls are coming in. When we call out to God, when we observe God in those situations, he takes us to a spacious place, a place of possibility, a place of expectation, a place where we can begin to dream again. In that place, our mindset flips because we realize that we are no longer alone. We are not vulnerable. and We can walk in the security and the authority of God Almighty. Can I get the band up here? I'm going to finish in just a moment. I want to dare you this morning. I want to issue a dare. I dare you to break out this morning. Break out of whatever it is that you feel is oppressing you, that is holding you down. In others' walks of life, a breakout performance will rely on your abilities, upon your talent. Faith is not an ability. Faith isn't an ability. It's a recognition of who God is in relation to us and in relation to the obstacles that we face. This morning, we're going to push back the persuasiveness of a small world, a small world that persuades us to accept familiarity as some form of security. We're going to push that back. We're going to create a space for faith. Can everybody stand this morning? I dare you to consider all of the little compromises that you have allowed throughout your life when faced with adversity. All of those little compromises where you've just put up a little wall here, dug a little moat there, put a little guard dog over there, where you have allowed restriction and restraint to come around your life for the sake of a sense of security, a sense of control. Those things are a false economy because they are neither safe and you are not in control. God is in control even in the turmoil, especially in the turmoil. When you, when you run from the fight, you don't allow God's strength to come through. But we're going we're gonna to pray. We're going to actually worship in a moment. I've asked the band to come up here. We're going to sing a song. And in that song, I want you in yourselves to recognize the points of restraint, the ceilings, the strongholds, the bondage that keeps you down, that does not let you fulfill all that you know God has for you. The roadblocks that stand in the way of the destiny that God has placed upon your life. When you hear promises of God and you know that you aren't walking in that or you can't walk in that, pinpoint the reason why. Pinpoint the point at which you said no more, where you tapped out, where you chose a different route, a safer route maybe. We're going to pray in a minute. I, I encourage you, use that as an opportunity.
break down those strongholds and to break out. I dare you to break out this morning. Let these words as you sing them be one of declaration towards God. Where you declare that those bonds come off, that those chains be broken. That you break out. Break out into all that God has called for you. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or you'd like to find out contact information or service times, then don't forget to visit our website, www.thejunctionchurch.com. God bless.